You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Does he then, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Dear Lord, we thank you for uh, all the words you've given us in your Bible, words to, to lead us and teach us, Lord. We thank you for these harsh words as well. And we pray that you would open our eyes to, to understand uh, what we can uh, learn from them, Lord. We pray that you would bless and guide Tom today as he brings your message, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. The title I ended up with for our study in this series of Paul's letter to the Galatians is In Your Face, Grace. And part of what I'm getting at with that title is that the gospel that Paul preached in Galatia and in all the Gentile cities throughout the Roman Empire was and still is outrageous to those who were bent on maintaining the religious status quo. It was a scandalous offense to the sensibilities of the Judaizers who were convinced that circumcision and law-keeping were demanded as necessary proofs of a righteous standing before God for both Jews and Gentiles. And Paul's message was equally scandalous for the man-made wisdom and moral licentiousness that pervaded the, the pagan culture's of Rome. Paul was vividly aware of the scandalous nature of his gospel message to lost sinners, to those who were perishing. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 if you want to see that presented in living color. One thing you'll never ever find Paul doing in any of his letters is pulling his punches when it comes to the gospel. He knows Christ is a stumbling stone, and the last thing that he would ever do, or that any of the other epistle writers would ever do, is to try to knock the rough edges off of that stone to make him easier for men to avoid stumbling over. But it's very important for us to bear in mind, as we read this forceful letter, that Paul did not write it to lost people. He wrote it to the churches of Galatia. He wrote it to those to whom he refers over and over as brothers in Christ. And what got Paul really torqued in this letter, what brought him to the point of calling his readers foolish and bewitched, was that these were Christians who at one level or another were buying into a less scandalous gospel than the one that Jesus Christ had delivered to Paul to preach. He's addressing Christians who were messing with the purity of the earth-shaking, life-giving, worldview-turning gospel of Jesus Christ. In the first five verses of Galatians 3, Paul turns from his earlier rebuke of Peter and he focuses now on 
the Galatian believers to whom he's writing. There are actually no statements in these five verses. There are just five very pointed questions, one in each verse. Verse 3 is the centerpiece and the focal point of this barrage of questions. There are technically two questions in verse 3, but I treat them as one. Because the first short one is just a verbal jab to focus the reader's attention on the second long one. Verse 3 says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's the key question in these five verses. Paul's point is very forceful and it's very straightforward. It is utter foolishness to think that having been justified one way, we are now being sanctified an entirely different way. To think that having been given a righteous standing in the eyes of God purely and only as an undeserved gift through faith in Jesus Christ, we are somehow now being perfected in that righteousness day by day by doing good works. Works of the law. This is unthinkable to Paul and it should be unthinkable to us. Paul just declared in passionate and deeply personal terms in Galatians 2.20 how it is that he lives as a child of God. He said, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And of course his point in that personal account of how he lives is that that's how every believer lives now. By faith, not by works. And it's not just about living well, it's about the legitimacy of the gospel itself. In the very next verse, Galatians 2.21, Paul said, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. He's being as clear as he can. Grace, the grace of God, is not something that allows for additional ingredients. Grace is like unleavened bread. In fact, Paul says just that in Galatians 5.9. He says, a little yeast leavens the whole lump. If you add anything that comes from you to God's grace, it's not grace anymore. That applied the moment God made us alive in Christ, and it applies every moment of every day since. Either Jesus was speaking the truth when he cried out from the cross, it is finished, or he was lying. If we are made righteous in any way, at any time, by law-keeping, then our salvation is not by grace and Jesus died needlessly. Let me say that one more time. If we are made righteous in any way, at any time, by law-keeping, then our salvation is not by grace and Jesus died needlessly. Grace plus anything equals no grace at all. That's what Paul has been talking about since the beginning of chapter 1. Paul begins his barrage of questions with gloves off. 
He says in chapter 3, verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. The best synonyms I can come up with for the word foolish that Paul uses here are daft and dense. This is not the word that Jesus used in Matthew 5 when he said, Whoever calls his brother a fool is guilty of murder in the eyes of God. That word, from which, by the way, we get the word moron, has the connotation of inability to understand. Inability. The word Paul uses here speaks of slowness or resistance to understand or to accept. This is the same word Jesus used when he revealed himself to those two disciples walking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus soon after Jesus was resurrected. Those two disciples were in a state of confusion and disappointment. (laughs) Disappointment because they were, quote, hoping that it was he, Jesus, who was going to redeem Israel, end quote. But now he had died a criminal's death. And confusion because they had heard that his tomb had been found empty. And they were trying to figure out what to make of that. So Jesus said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. See, Jesus called those men foolish not because they were lost or godless or incapable of understanding all that had happened, but that all that had happened in Jesus' life and death and resurrection was exactly as the prophets had foretold. He called them foolish because they were slow on the uptake. His words, slow of heart to believe, get to the real issue. See, it's a heart issue. It's not a head issue. It's as if he's saying to them, your problem is not a lack of good information. Your problem is that your heart makes you dense. God's been telling you about me ever since Moses. His own 11 disciples struggled with the same kinds of questions and, and things. Here in Galatians 3, Paul is talking to struggling saints, not false prophets, just as Jesus was there in Luke 24. Paul is saying to these Galatians, you already have all the evidence that you need to know that you cannot live the Christian life by law-keeping. The problem that we, including you and I, have with grace is that the gospel turns everything that we expect upside down, or rather right side up. It is such a radically different worldview that even though we know it, we struggle to actually live in keeping with it. That's why even the Apostle Peter fumbled the ball. It's as if we fall under a spell at times that fogs our minds and makes complicated something that has been revealed as crystal clear. So Paul asks, who has bewitched you? 
before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's saying, you already know how this works. But you're acting as if some sorcerer cast a daftness spell on you. And what makes it so unthinkable for you to be flirting with the heresy of the Judaizers is how compellingly and how convincingly you've had the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, presented to you. The words publicly portrayed mean (laughs) written right up front. It's as if Paul had painted the gospel in giant letters on billboard-sized signs and stuck those signs in the front yards of every Galatian saint. (laughs) And he's saying, Galatians, Christ has been proclaimed to you so clearly that it's as if you had been standing at the foot of the cross yourselves. By the way, that says something about the power of the gospel message itself. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. When we proclaim the gospel to people, the gospel that we find in the Bible, it's as if we are setting the person of Jesus Christ in front of those people. Because the Holy Spirit shines His million-watt searchlight on on the proclamation that He's given us to give to others. There are two parts to to the life-giving and life-defining truth that Paul then calls the Galatian saints and every saint in this room to remember and to count as true right now and each day. First, you were made alive by hearing and believing the gospel, not by doing good works. And secondly, you now live the same way you were made alive, by hearing and believing. First, how you were made alive. In verse 2, Paul points the Galatians' attention back to their experience. What they actually saw happen when they first came to faith in Jesus and received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, Peter God sent Peter to proclaim the gospel to a Gentile named Cornelius, a battalion commander. And that was a novel concept for Peter because before that point, he still thought that Jews, including Jewish believers in Christ, weren't supposed to associate very much with Gentiles. But Peter went at God's command, and when Cornelius and his friends heard and believed the good news that Peter proclaimed to them, Peter and the Jews who had gone with him were, quote, amazed. They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. That's Acts 10, 46. During the apostolic period, when God was first establishing his church, As the gospel spread to new places and new peoples, God at times attested to the gospel message by performing miraculous signs to prove the presence of the Holy Spirit in those new believers. Signs that visibly demonstrated that the Spirit had come to dwell within them. I think it's possible that he still does that in places where the gospel is is. Coming afresh. 
He doesn't do it all the time, by the way, because you look at some accounts, like the account of the Philippian jailer and his family coming to faith, there's, there's no record of this kind of thing happening there. The Ethiopian eunuch, others. But it seems that at various points, God provided visible proofs of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit when he came to indwell new believers. And those miraculous manifestations of the Spirit always, always came right after two things happened. That is, right after those receiving the message of the gospel heard and believed. In the next chapter of Acts, Acts 11, Peter has gone back to Jerusalem after this visit with Cornelius, and he's now explaining to some other Jewish believers what he had just witnessed. (laughs) And he said to these guys, If God therefore gave to them, the Gentiles, the same gift, the same indwelling Holy Spirit that He gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, then who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter's saying, when those Gentiles heard the gospel of Christ from my own lips, and when they believed that message, they received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I saw it with my own eyes. I heard it with my own ears. How then could I stand in God's way, since He is so clearly redeeming Gentiles the same way that He redeemed us? I believe Paul is reminding the Gentile saints in Galatia that they, at least some of them, experienced and witnessed those same miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit when they heard and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He asked them this pointed question in Galatians 3, verse 2. He says, This is the only thing I want to find out from you. In other words, your answer to this one question will make my case for me. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? or by hearing with faith? And the answer was clear. Just like Cornelius before them, the Galatians hadn't done anything to entice or convince or coerce the Holy Spirit to take up residence in them. They had simply heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and they had believed, they had trusted in Him. Works of the law of Moses or of any other law had Absolutely nothing to do with it. Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14 says that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is God's down payment of all the rest of your inheritance as redeemed children of God. And you know how those two verses, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, say that we come to receive that very personal down payment? By hearing and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like Paul says here. He says in those verses, In Him you also, in other words, not just us Jews, you Gentiles too, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a down payment of your inheritance, our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. You heard, you believed, and God sealed you. He sealed you. For eternity. You didn't get the Holy Spirit when you were physically baptized any more than the Judaizers got circumcised hearts when they were eight days old and lost their foreskins. 
You didn't get the Holy Spirit when someone laid hands on you and prayed for a second work of grace. Or when you spoke in tongues, if you've had that experience. The Holy Spirit permanently took up residence in you the moment God made you His. And that was the moment that you heard and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and raised from the dead. And guess what? <laughs> Even the hearing and believing part is God's doing, not yours. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. And when he says that not of ourselves, he's talking about the whole package. The salvation by grace through faith is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no man should boast. We don't even get to brag about our faith. Because God did that too. Alright, so you were made alive when you heard and believed. And Paul's point is that's also how you now live. By hearing and believing. In verse 3, Paul says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? (laughs) There's a great declaration in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Very simple and straightforward. Paul says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. As you have received Him, so walk in Him. And then he explains what he means. He says, Having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in Him, and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. He's saying, look, here's how you came to life. You were instructed. You heard the truth of Jesus Christ and you believed the truth of Jesus Christ. You put your trust in the person and the finished work of Christ. Now, you're being built up that same way. Built up in Christ. You're being established in your faith as you have been instructed. In other words, you're believing the word of Christ that you have heard. And because it's all of grace, because it's all of grace, you're overflowing with gratitude. Do you remember, beloved, do you remember the gratitude you felt when you first came to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? I do. I remember that all the weight of my sin and guilt was gone. I knew with absolute clarity that God had taken every bit of my sin and my guilt and He had put it on His Son, my Savior. I knew that Jesus had paid that debt in full at the cost of His own life's blood. I knew that that the debt that I owed to God was gone forever and I was His child and my heart was overflowing with gratitude. With gratitude for the lever of my soul who delivered himself up for me. Paul is saying, do you remember that, brothers and sisters? That's how you live now. That's how you live every single day. You keep hearing the truth concerning the Son of God who loved you and delivered himself up for you. And that's what the whole Bible is about. And you believe, you trust 
in who he is and what he did for you at the cross. And then God fills you with overflowing gratitude that makes you zealous to do good deeds. It makes you delighted to serve your gracious Master and Savior. And law-keeping doesn't fit in there anywhere. It never did and it never will. We'll see what the law was for in the next later on in this chapter. It was not to make men righteous in the eyes of God. In verse 4, Paul says, in effect, that if we can be righteous by doing works of the law, then suffering for Christ is a fool's errand. If our good works can make us okay with God, then there's no reason for us to suffer for proclaiming Jesus as Savior, because He really isn't our Savior, we are. There's no reason for us to live the self-denying life that Christ lived. We could just devote all our our attention to keeping the right set of rules. And we'd never have to do anything as hazardous (laughs) to our own well-being as loving our enemies. Moses didn't tell us to do that. Jesus did. What makes our suffering, brothers and sisters, what makes our suffering for the sake of the gospel cause for rejoicing instead of lamentation is the certainty that God is doing with it what we could never do, just as He did with the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ. He is using it to make us holy and to bring the life of Christ to others through us. Our suffering has a purpose. It's a divine, eternal purpose. The certainty of God's sovereign grace is the only thing in this universe that makes sense of our suffering. The only thing. Works-based righteousness just makes suffering a fool's errand. Galatians 3 verse 2 was past tense. Paul said, did you receive receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That verse was talking about how we got started, how we were justified. Now, in verse 5, the verb tenses are present and ongoing. He's saying... This is how we're being sanctified, conformed to Christ. He says, does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul is drawing his readers' attention now to the work that's God, that God is doing right now. Not just in their midst, but in their hearts. He says, He supplies you with the Spirit. Now that doesn't mean that we receive the Spirit multiple times. (laughs) What it means, what Paul is saying, is that the Holy Spirit is our constant supply line. Our source of enablement every single day to live the life of a child of God and to do the work of Jesus Christ, the ongoing work of Christ, together with our fellow saints. He says, God supplies you with the Spirit And then he says, through the Spirit, God works powerful works in you. The word for powerful works here is the plural of the word power. It's often translated miracles. When he says that the Spirit works powerful works in you, that the in you part could mean among you, like in your midst. Stuff that you see going on around you. But the way Paul words this most often is translated 
in, not among. It's translated in you as in within you. And if you look at Ephesians chapter 3, I think it corroborates that understanding of what's going on here. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine, according to the power that works where? Within us. You know how many times I've heard that verse truncated after the, he's able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we ask or think? And everybody's looking around, okay, where? He says, within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. See, we tend to be enamored with the idea of God as the great cosmic situation changer. The one who does miraculous works around us. But I believe God is far more interested in doing miraculous works in us and through us in the lives of needful people. Those are the miracles, beloved, that abide for eternity. Not the Steven Spielberg scenes. And how do we receive this daily supply of equipping and enabling and miraculous inner transformation from the Holy Spirit? The exact same way that we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the first place. Not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. Whenever we think or act as if there is some great disconnect between how we began and how we are being perfected, our whole grid for understanding how the Christian life actually works gets mangled. And it needs to be straightened out. I want to wrap things up with this question. Are we, you and I, living by the Spirit or by the flesh? One thing we absolutely must not miss in this passage is that Paul equates law-keeping with living by the flesh. And he, he equates faith, hearing and believing, with living by the Spirit. Any time that we set foot in the realm of law-keeping as a way to be righteous, we lapse back into dependence on the flesh and we turn away from dependence on the Spirit. Instead of dying to the old self, we start doing CPR on the old self. Like we're trying to breathe life back into that lifeless corpse. In recent weeks, as we've been in this series, I've suggested couple of lists of specific ways that we tend to lapse into a works-based legalistic approach to righteousness. I won't give you another list this morning. I just want you to consider one particular symptom of how a works-based approach, a fleshly approach to the Christian life can easily derail us as a church, not just as individuals. I'm in the midst of reading this uh, very insightful book that uh, Ron mentioned before, and, and Bob uh, asked all the elders to read. It's called The Prodigal Church, Jared Wilson. I highly, highly, highly recommend this. I wish I could somehow assign it to everybody and make that happen. But I'm not a priest. I'm just a teaching elder. This book is a stunner. Wilson does an exhaustive job of bringing together evidence from many sources to demonstrate that the traits and metrics that many church leaders and many church members elevate as most desirable are mirages. 
He talks about one, quote, attractional church, what I used to call seeker-friendly churches, with thousands of members that surveyed its own congregation that church's leadership had for years believed that as much as 50% of its membership had been unchurched before coming to their church. What they found when they did the survey was that the right number was 3%. The reality behind the geometric growth of many megachurches is that they are largely growing by drawing churchgoers from smaller churches. They're discovering that many of their people don't stay very long before they move on to another church, large or small. That's what discontented people do. That's what people who go to church to receive instead of to use their gifts to minister do. They keep looking. The thrust of what I've gotten from reading the first third to half of this book is not that big churches are bad and little churches are good. It's that churches whose leaders and members have their attention fixed on things like methods and programs and corporate style goal setting and head counts and bank accounts are churches that quickly become stiflingly dependent on the works and ways of man and lose all meaningful dependence on the works and ways of God. The reason that justification by grace alone can only be justification through faith alone, in Christ alone, is because Jesus is the only one whose righteousness passes muster with God. And you know what that means for us? It means our place in that whole paradigm of God's salvation story is a place of utter dependence and faith. Trust is the response of, it's the response of those who are utterly dependent on a perfectly gracious and perfectly trustworthy God. But that faith is not only how we are justified, it's how we are being sanctified both individually and corporately. It's how we are being conformed to Christ, purified as a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Titus 2.14. That doesn't happen because we have the right checklist. (laughs) It happens because we're trusting in the Son of God who loved us and delivered Himself up for us. Let me ask you this. How long would you keep, if you're an elder in a church, how long would you keep an evangelist on your church payroll if one day he had 5,000 people come to hear his preaching and the next day he said something that ran off all but a tiny handful of them and all those who left never came back? That's exactly what Jesus did in John chapter 6. How does that match up with our priorities and our metrics of what constitutes successful ministry? In whom are we trusting? Dependent faith is how we approach all of life. It's how we approach the life of the body, the church. If we truly trust Christ and we do not trust ourselves, we'll certainly do the kinds of things that match up with His character and with His revealed agenda. But we will know that all our efforts would certainly amount to nothing if their success depended on us. Ever. 
We will believe that our efforts will certainly be turned into miracles by the living God because their success depends entirely on Him. Read 2 Corinthians chapters 2 and 3. You know how Paul was, was sure that the motley Corinthians had been eternally impacted by his ministry? Because God is his adequacy. That's it. That's the only reason. We won't worry about getting our methodology exactly right. doesn't mean we won't work on methodology. We won't fret about it. (laughs) We won't fret about whether our mix of programs or our Sunday schedule or our choice of music are just the way they need to be. We'll give reasonable diligence to prayerfully thinking about such things and making adjustments here and there, but we will never be fearful that our works or even our good judgment determines our usefulness to God because it doesn't. Not at the individual level, not at the corporate level. We will know that we don't always get to see all the miraculous things that God is doing in the hearts of men and women and children through our individual and corporate ministries. But as we go about doing the kinds of things that match up with God's character and with God's revealed agenda to seek and save the lost... If we are trusting in the author and perfecter of faith instead of trusting in the works themselves, we we can be certain that God is doing miraculous work in us and through us. If we're not trusting Him, well, (laughs) I've come to believe very firmly that God often withholds the very fruit that He ultimately intends to produce through us until He convinces us that we're not the ones producing it. The same principle applies in our individual lives and in our family lives and in our friendships and in our workplaces. It applies to how we raise our children. We still have very much to learn about this, we about living the Christian life well in the nuts and bolts of daily life. We have a lot of growing to do as individuals and as a body. And even where we're getting it right, God says to us, as Paul said to the Thessalonians, Excel still more. Don't you hate it when your parents said that to you? That's good. Now do better. That's what God says. There's no place for laziness or complacency when God has left us on this earth to expand His kingdom until the day He takes us into His glorious presence. But beloved, we should be praying with all resolve that God will teach us to live every single day in every single part of life, not by trusting in our wisdom or our methods or our to-do lists, but that He would teach us to live by just one life-transforming principle, by faith in the Son of God who loved us and delivered Himself up for us. I'll close with the first two verses of Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house... They labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. For He gives to His beloved even in His sleep. Dear Father, we confess that we too easily turn our eyes onto ourselves and onto 
dependence on our own strength. We ask that you would daily break us from the dullness of self-dependence and draw our eyes and our hearts back to simple, unrelenting faith in you and your Son and your Spirit in all the works that you do in us, through us, and around us. Do your mighty work, Lord, that all the glory may go only to you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.